Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, Facebook is under the microscope and has seemingly done the impossible to get Republicans and Democrats to agree. Conservatives are poised to roll back abortion rights with a majority on the Supreme Court. Plus, we'll be joined by one of the authors of Peril, chronicling Donald Trump's chaotic final days in office. And healthcare workers and school staffers are being threatened by anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers. And a local congresswoman tests positive for COVID. All of those stories on the way. But first, this week, the Seattle City Council made a move to say, hey, we want to legalize psychedelics. So magic mushrooms, if the city council has its way, would be legal here in Washington state, or at least in the city of Seattle. Joining me now is uh, Matt Markovich, and you've covered City Hall for uh, many, many years. And mm-hmm. and this seems to be kind of par for the course for what they're wanting to do. Well, they're basically following the trend of cities like Denver and Oakland and, and the entire state of Oregon, which is decriminalized. Uh, that's the proper term mm-hmm. uh, for some of these psychedelics. Um, that basically are shrooms. It's not, these are psychedelics that occur naturally in nature. Um, it sounds weird to say that. So, so, yeah, so, so we're not talking like LSD or right, something like manufactured, that. Uh, and, uh, not manufactured, not peyote. Yeah, not manufactured in a lab or somebody has to make it. Because there's a push that a lot of these drugs can be used as alternative treatments to for mental health issues. So the city council is doing that. Other people may look at it as a, it's still look as a very progressive move by city councils to do this. The intent, again, it's a resolution, uh, which is basically asking the Seattle Police Department, because that's what they have somewhat of jurisdiction of, to make it a lower emphasis on the pro- uh, arresting people who mm-hmm. have these drugs in their possession. But can they really do that? Because that's executive function, isn't it? That's the mayor, that's the police chief that decide how to run and prosecute crimes. And it, it, the city council's job is to set the law. Right. And they, they would, the only way they would do that, like you're saying, is pass an ordinance to decriminalize these drugs. So by going the resolution route, which that's what the city councils do all the time, any elected official does that, it's not necessarily binding. It doesn't mean it's a law. It says that we would like to see this. We're going on the record to do that. And that's what the city council did with this resolution, asking its own police force not to enforce the drug enforcement laws on these drugs. It's still a Schedule One drug, just like heroin, mm-hmm. uh, some of these uh, naturally occurring psychedelics shrooms um so so but it does send a signal uh and as the council has been not, even in previous councils what mm-hmm. they did with marijuana they you know they expunged all the records of anybody who had a marijuana conviction a misdemeanor conviction in the city of seattle at forever since the reefer madness days so <laughs> so this could be the next step or something like that where they eventually if they do decriminalize it then then the city attorney and the mayor could expunge all those arrests that were involving shrooms. This seems to be something that the city council loves to do. You mentioned uh, signaling, virtue signaling. They're they're trying mm-hmm. to say this is where we stand on this issue, even though they have no real legal authority here, because as you say, it's still a Schedule One narcotic, according to the federal government. Yeah, they can do that until their heart's content pass these resolutions. It's, it doesn't affect the, the average person other than to send a suggestion to, in this case, the city attorney on what to do, as well as the police force, what to do in the city of Seattle. The city council can't even tell the city attorney really what to do because the city attorney is an independent office, independent of the mayor, elected separately, then the mayor, then the council. Mm -hmm. That's all up to the city attorney, though, isn't it? That's true. It's very true. 
But then again, they always have the power of the purse and the power of the proviso. Mm-hmm. And that's what this council, I'm, I'm going a little bit off track, but that's how they've been able to control a lot of how Seattle uh, handles its uh, moral issues, let's put mm-hmm. it that way, whether it's homelessness or spending money on convictions. The, the proviso means that we're going to give you, the city attorney, let's say $100,000 to do this, but you have this proviso, meaning you can only spend it this way. And it could say, hey, and we don't want any of this money to go to convicting anyone who may have been caught with a naturally occurring psychedelic. So are they looking to, as you say, expunge the records of some people that have been caught with this that we saw them do with marijuana in years past? I haven't heard that at all. I haven't heard that at all. But being that way the state is moving in terms of how it's handling drug enforcement, especially following the Blake decision, which is a famous decision where a woman was caught with some drugs on mm-hmm. them and then you couldn't convict them. It's basically sent a message to all the police forces in the city, in the state of Washington, that if people have possession of small amounts of narcotics, including heroin, you know, we're not going to prosecute them. That's what the state Supreme Court ruled in its decision, it's known as the Blake decision ruled. And so that's affecting police agencies throughout the state, including Seattle, and it's affecting county prosecutors too, because some county prosecutors, as we know in King County, Dan Satterberg, has very high thresholds for people who are caught with heroin on their person. Uh, the police force tell us, you know, it's maybe eight grams, you know, one gram is illegal, mm-hmm. uh, but the threshold of where it will be charged as a crime, as part of any kind of uh, combined effort, if they're involved in something else, those those charges aren't happening right now at the King County level because of the philosophical beliefs of the King County prosecutor and clearly what the state Supreme Court is signaling to all prosecutors and police agencies throughout the state. You've been out there, whether it's with the homeless encampments, uh, you've covered the drug problem in in city of Seattle for many, many years. How big is the issue of these psychedelics? Because obviously marijuana is now legal in Washington state, still illegal federally. But we see a lot of heroin, we see a lot of opioids, we see a lot of these other manufactured drugs out there causing problems. What about these, as we say, naturally occurring psychedelics? I personally have not seen them or even talked to any dealers out there that is actually dealing with them. Or if they are, it's at such a small level and the money value is very little um, because the just like h- hardcore drugs, people are asking for something harder. You know, there's still people who go out into the hills here and can pick their shrooms for <laughs> legitimate reasons because they, <laughs> they cook them, but there's also ones that they can go get what they want. Yeah. Um, but on the street level, it's not a big deal. It's still fentanyl is huge. Heroin is huge. Uh, methamphetamine is huge. Marijuana is still big, too. Uh, just It's just that people are selling it amongst themselves. They don't have to go to the weed shop to do it. So is is this going to be a problem for the city council because they've, they've done so much to limit what the police can do, whether it's with the homeless crisis, whether it's with prosecuting these harder drugs? Is this just an, another step in restricting what Seattle police can do? Because we know that this city council is not a big fan of the police department and how it's been run. I don't think so. I think we're on a, at a level here where we're not hearing that somebody, there's a prolific shoplifter who's just doing it because he has a, a psychedelic uh, addiction. Mm-hmm. These are, these actually, these drugs are non-addictive, they say, so the experts say. 
you know, it's not mm-hmm. like a heroin or fentanyl or methamphetamine or even alcohol, you know, for that matter. Uh, these these don't have that really strong addictive quality, so you don't see people committing crimes in order to support their shroom habit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not happening. But, I mean, they are psychedelics. They cause... Uh, you know, an altered state of consciousness, as yeah. as it were, and and I'm speaking from the total rube perspective. Yeah. I have no idea how you know what it's like to 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 sample any of this stuff. But is that a problem? Do you see a lot of people committing crimes while they're high on these drugs? I haven't personally. No, I haven't seen any evidence, at least through the SPD reports that I've been following for years, that that is an issue. All right, Matt Markovich, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. When we come back, evangelicals are salivating over the Supreme Court's new term and its docket of cases when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Well, it looks like the religious rights wish list, the issues of abortion, guns, the death penalty, and public money being spent on religious schools are all before a more conservative Supreme Court this term. Joining me now is Josh Gerdstein. He's a reporter for Politico who covers the high court. And well, when they released the cases that they were going to be hearing this term, it seemed like it was going to be a very controversial couple of months. Yeah, it definitely does seem that way, Jeff. It's a combination of both the lineup of cases and the new lineup on the Supreme Court. You know, you have a position where Republican appointed justices really are going to be dominant. And for that wing of the court to be stopped is going to require something pretty extraordinary to unfold. What are some of the cases? We talked about some some of the issues, but what are some of the specific cases that they're expected to hear? Well, the biggest case of the year, the real uh, blockbuster is Uh, An abortion case is scheduled to be argued on December 1st, uh, involves a ban that Mississippi passed on abortions before uh, 15 weeks. Um, And the state of Mississippi is really bringing this forward as a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade. There are some other ways the case could be resolved without um, necessarily attacking Roe versus Wade head on. But the state is basically saying they want that overturned and they believe that it's sort of mooted by the passage of time. Folks may remember they basically used sort of a trimester division in Roe versus Wade where the first trimester, um, a woman could basically uh, have privacy rights to do what she wanted. Uh, the last trimester, a state could basically ban most kinds of uh, abortion under most circumstances. And in the middle trimester, uh, there was sort of some role for the state and some role for women's decisions, not just prenatal care, but also the care of premature infants has, has really progressed in many ways. And you do have some really extraordinary cases with, with you know, uh, babies that are surviving at a younger and younger age. And the state's using that to try to argue that the, the old way of looking at these kinds of abortion disputes uh, should be set aside and the whole Roe v. Wade precedent should basically be tossed out. Whether the court's willing to go that far, we'll have to see. Well, we saw a bit of a preview in this, although they didn't get to the merits of the case, when the Supreme Court let stand that new Texas law. Right. So that may be an indication of where the justices come down on this issue, although it's not, it, like you said, it wasn't really a formal uh, merits ruling from the court, but that decision came down 5-4 with five justices allowing the Texas law to take effect, uh, which is a different type of abortion ban. And four justices, interestingly, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts uh, sort of joined the Democratic appointees on the court, the three liberals, 
uh, he said he would have halted the Texas law pending uh, further action. So that's one of the questions about what happens this year. Are we going to see a lot of 6-3 cases uh, for the conservatives or will it be 5-4 with Roberts um, perhaps joining the Democratic appointees as he's done in some, but not all cases uh, in the last uh, couple of years. What about some of the other issues that they're expected to take on gun rights, death penalty and the like? Well, so the gun rights case is also pretty significant. The first big um, Second Amendment case that the court has taken in several years, it's dealing with gun rights outside the home. Um, folks may know that New York and New York City in particular have some of the most restrictive gun laws in the country. Uh, and this case has to do with uh, the use of guns outside the home, whether you have a, a constitutional right to carry, to keep and bear arms, as the Constitution says, does that mean to keep and bear arms on your person when you walk around in the street? Or is that something the government has the right to regulate? And even among conservative legal scholars, there is some debate. Most of them say, look, there's definitely a right to keep and bear arms in your home. But keeping and bearing arms in public has always been a different matter. And you do have a lot of law enforcement people who are concerned, particularly with the very polarized politics that we have at the moment, Jeff, that if you added into that mix the notion that people would have the right to carry weapons on their person when they go to a political rally or event, a protest or a counter protest, uh, it could really become a public safety nightmare. And what about the issue of the death penalty? Obviously, this is something that's been debated back and forth. At one point, the Supreme Court struck down the death penalty, then they brought it back. Where do the things stand now? Well, I don't think we have any cases that the court has accepted that squarely uh, address the issue of whether the death penalty is a constitutional punishment. That's pretty much been accepted by the court for for quite a while now, uh, maybe not by every justice, but by the court as a whole. But we do have two disputes related to the death penalty that are on the docket already. Uh, one comes out of Boston, has to do with the Boston Marathon uh, bombing and the question of whether pretrial publicity. And as you can imagine, the very strong feelings in Boston about the marathon bombing undermined the trial of, you may remember, one of the two brothers. One brother was killed in a standoff with police. The other one survived the younger one and went on trial. And whether, you know, uh, prejudicial publicity undermined his right to a fair trial. He was uh, sentenced to death as a result of his participation in the, the marathon bombing. And that's something the court will take up. The other one has to do with uh, what the rights of people who are being executed are. And uh, you have a prisoner that is interested um, in having a laying on of hands by, uh, by a minister uh, during the execution itself, says it's uh, vital to his religion that that take place uh, while his soul is escaping the body. The Supreme Court here took the unusual step of actually halting an execution, not just for a matter of hours, but at least for several months, so that it could take up this issue of what are exactly the religious freedom rights of a prisoner who is facing execution. And then the other big contentious issue is taxpayer money for religious schools. What's going on there? So this is a case that um, involves a question of uh, when a state has something like a tax credit or another kind of subsidy program uh, that flows to parents. It's pretty clear that uh, the state can't directly pay religious education, that that uh, amounts to an establishment of religion and kind of blurs the lines. Uh, but traditionally, uh, we know that college students, for example, many of them attend sectarian uh, universities and they get money such as Pell Grants. And this is testing more, I think, in a more in the in the um, elementary 
high school type level uh, when there are voucher programs that are set up by uh, states or maybe by cities? Um, are these things that can be applied to religious schools or does that amount to too much of an entanglement uh, that really creates the possibility of the government having to decide what types of religious education are adequate and what types are not? So that's another thing that court will be wading into in a lot of eyes. They'll be on Justice Amy Barrett. She's known before coming on the court for a lot of her writings about issues related to religious freedom. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see if she takes sort of a front and center role in that particular case. And all of these are coming at a time when the Supreme Court seems to be losing popular support and thus losing its legitimacy with the American public. Yeah, there are a lot of questions at the moment. Uh, you know, when they issue controversial rulings, the court's uh, approval ratings seem to go down. And there is a feeling in some quarters that uh, the court has become out of step with the public. I mean, obviously, part of this is due to the fact that somewhat unexpectedly, uh, President Donald Trump uh, came up with three nominations to the Supreme Court. Part of that had to do with uh, the death of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Part of it had to do with the fact that Republicans uh, held open a vacancy on the Supreme Court so that uh, President Obama could not flip. But the net result was uh, Trump making three selections to the Supreme Court is also something that has not happened for a number of decades. And that has led to a sentiment, especially uh, on the left side of the political spectrum, uh, that the court is now out of step uh, with the public. We're also seeing a lot of proposals for Supreme Court uh, reforms to perhaps increase the number of justices to maybe rotate them, maybe set term limits on how long they can stay on the court. That's all born sort of out of liberal frustration with many of the court's uh, recent rulings. In fact, there was so much discussion of this uh, among Demo Democrats in the last couple of years that President Joe Biden has appointed a commission uh, to make recommendations to him on whether he should take up uh, any of these suggestions about how to overhaul the court in an effort to try to increase its legitimacy. All right, Josh Gerstein, Supreme Court reporter for Politico. Thank you so much for your time. Jeff, my pleasure. Anytime. When we come back, Republicans and Democrats seem to agree on one thing. Facebook is bad. When the Como Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. A Senate committee heard from a whistleblower this week who claims Facebook manipulated content that it knew it was harmful to young users. This a day after the social media giant experienced an apparently unrelated massive outage. Frances Haugen, who revealed her identity during a Sunday interview on CBS's 60 Minutes, has been cooperating with a Senate investigation as part of its ongoing efforts to assess potential regulation of the platform. Haugen telling lawmakers about evidence that she has that allegedly shows the company intentionally ignored proof of its potentially harmful impact on users. Joining us now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C., and this harmful impact seems to go well beyond children and troubled teens. Well, it goes to other nations here. Uh, despite all of the efforts, according to this whistleblower, that Facebook has put into security and making sure that kids are protected from harmful uh, images or ads or uh, bullies online, all of that uh, stuff that Facebook says they are doing, which this woman uh, who is a whistleblower suggests they're not doing quite well, uh, doesn't seem to be getting done as well in other nations. Remember, Facebook's not just here in the United States. It's all over the world. And according to this whistleblower, they are not putting the resources into the same kind of security 
and protections in other places. So it's not just children. We can talk about spies sending messages on uh, Facebook locally in African countries or Eastern European countries or uh, trying to upset elections, as many people have claimed happened on Facebook in other countries. So there's a lot going on here. A lot of the senators liken this to the big tobacco hearings when there were whistleblowers saying, look at all the documents that these tobacco companies had that they knew of the harmful effects of cigarettes. They knew and they were hiding it. And once that stuff became public, uh, it opened the floodgates to lawsuits from people who had gotten lung cancer or families of those who had died of lung cancer. And it cost tobacco companies billions and really changed the way people looked at smoking in this country. Perhaps this may be the beginning of that with social media. Well, and we've talked so much about the, the difficulty that teens have in, in, you know, obviously in their formative years, there's uh, self-esteem issues and, and Facebook had its difficulties with its failed attempt to build Instagram for children. But beyond just that, it looks like their algorithms, at least according to Ms. Haugen, the, uh, the whistleblower, amplified not only voices of dissent, but false information in advancement of profit. Well, that's her claims. Now, Facebook is uh, coming out and basically killing the messenger by saying she didn't work there very long. She didn't have access to a lot of the information that that even she admits she didn't have access to in these hearings. However, she did say that a lot of these memos and the information that was circulated within Facebook was readily available to almost anyone who worked there. It wasn't any secret inside Facebook, just perhaps outside the organization. And that's where the big problem comes in. She also promised that there's a lot more information, or at least suggested there's a lot more information she's going to let out there that will uh, further hurt Facebook. Now, of course, Facebook, as you mentioned, had this massive outage this week, which doesn't seem to be related at all to this. They're not quite sure why it is. The value of their stock dipped billions of dollars because of some of these revelations and the fact that um, everyone kind of took it for granted like a utility. Uh, it's, it's amazing. If you look at your phone and you uh, look at your apps and how much you use it, you would be astonished at how much time you or your family members are spending on Facebook and Instagram. And that's exactly what Facebook and Instagram want you to do. The more you're on there, the more you're um, so exposed to their ads, which makes it more valuable to those advertisers, which makes it more profitable for Facebook. So they want to make sure they keep engaging you. And the way that they engage you is the way that almost any media engages you. It's either scintillating information, outrageous, things that make you mad, things that make you happy. Uh, there is a big um, upside for Facebook to keep that information going there. And that's exactly some of the things that this whistleblower and others are saying are harmful to teens and children. So what kind of regulations are lawmakers proposing or even considering? Well, there's something called the Kids Act, and I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but they cleverly wrote it so it has the letters K-I-D and S in there. But basically, it's updating some of the, the rules and regulations to say, look, if you're going to have a social media platform and you're regulated by the United States, you got to make sure there are some protections in there, uh, specifically for parents to say, hey, we can block certain kinds of ads. We can opt out of these algorithms that target our kids and things like that, which is good for kids, good for parents, not necessarily good for Facebook and any social media that makes money off of selling that information and giving it to advertisers. And unusually, it looks like both Republicans and Democrats are lining up against Facebook for different reasons. A kumbaya moment for both parties. It's unusual, but... Uh, and, and again, as you mentioned, for different reasons, Republicans tend to think that 
Facebook and Twitter and others are censoring conservatives and they want to have regulations to stop them from doing that. Democrats uh, feel that there's harm to kids and, and harm. And I'm certainly certainly there are Republicans who feel the same way, but they're, they're coming at this from two different angles. But the goal is the same to regulate these pretty much monopoly uh, groups here. You don't have any of the old social media. AOL has kind of faded into obscurity here. Many of the other early kind of Facebook like apps are gone. So Facebook and Instagram pretty much, and Twitter pretty much own the market, and that's a monopoly. And the U.S. government says they have some role in controlling that. All right, ABC's Andy Field, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Perfect, thanks. Still to come, one of the authors of Peril, a shocking account of President Trump's final days in office, when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Here's Como's Elisa Jaffe. Washington rocked by bombshell allegations in the new book Peril about President Trump's final days in office and the early days of the Biden presidency. Joining us on the Como Newsline is Robert Costa, who co-authored the book with Bob Woodward. Robert, how would you characterize General Mark Milley after what he revealed to you and your co-author for the book and how he's been scrutinized by lawmakers since its release? Our reporting shows that General Milley was deeply alarmed as the senior military officer in the United States about President Trump's conduct in the final days, believed there was a national security emergency he had to address. And so he had a call with the head of the People's Liberation Army in China, General Lee. He called in members of the Pentagon's war room to make sure that nuclear weapons were in a good place, that nothing out of the ordinary would happen. It was a complicated moment. Milley did not go outside of his usual channels. He worked within his his duties based on our reporting. But at the same time, he was deeply alarmed and taking steps to make sure that chaos did not happen behind the scenes. He admitted to lawmakers recently that he spoke to your co-author for the book, but couldn't say if he was accurately represented because he said he hadn't read the book. What surprises you about General Milley? Well, so much of our reporting was essentially confirmed by General Milley's under oath testimony before Congress. He confirmed that he called in members of the Pentagon's war room to go over nuclear procedures. He confirmed that he spoke to the Chinese general, General Lee, on October 30th of last year and January 8th of this year. He confirmed he did not believe President Trump wanted war, but he needed to de-escalate the situation. So as reporters, we listened and we heard a lot of confirmation in his answers. But of course, as the senior officer of the U.S. military, he's not going to maybe detail uh, everything he believes uh, at every single moment. And it's complicated for him at times to navigate partisan attacks as a nonpartisan figure. You also describe in your book how President Biden and his aides reportedly refer to former President Trump in private. They don't even like to use his name uh, around the Biden White House, the, the T word, because they're trying to really move on from Trump. But it's so hard for them to move on from Trump. Democracy tested like never before. Our book shows that this was a national security emergency, a domestic political crisis. And so much of the Biden presidency, especially in his his decisions to be progressive, to be transformational in his spending approach, this is all a reaction to Trump to try to win back the working class, pull them back from the Republicans, to get the, the Democratic Party in a better position post-Trump. Why does Biden call the White House the tomb? That's something you found out. He doesn't love living there. This is someone who always sought the presidency, but doesn't actually love living in the White House. He thinks it's cold. He thinks it's a little odd that you have an usher and uh, different aides who are willing to take off your jacket and hang it up all the time 
and give you some food and make sure you always have a coffee or tea in hand. It's almost like an elite upscale hotel. And Biden just doesn't love it. He's a guy who much prefers to be at his Delaware beach house in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. And we see that many weekends he'll travel to Delaware rather than hang around Washington. You combed through diaries and documents that a lot of people hadn't seen yet. What do you remember looking at and saying, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this? Well, the call between Milley and Pelosi in our book is just stunning historically to see the conversation on paper of the Speaker of the House talking to the senior officer in the U.S. military about fear that President Trump is unraveling, collapsing into his presidency. I'm just a reporter, but I I suspect historians may look at that transcript years from now and say this was a snapshot of a moment. And that's why people who have read this whole book have just said, wow, so much is in here. It's such a complicated, winding story about the transition period in this whole period in American politics. Robert Costa, the co-author of Peril, really appreciate you taking time and talking to us, Robert. Thank you. But that's not all. Several organizers of the January 6th rally that erupted into an attack on the Capitol are prepared to comply with the committee investigating the insurrection. ABC's Catherine Falder is joining us on the Como Newsline from Washington with more on this. Catherine, sounds like former President Trump's lawyer is advising some top associates not to cooperate with the congressional investigators. Yeah, so there's two different batches here of subpoenas, let's just say. The the first subpoenas that they issued were four subpoenas to senior aides and, and advisors close to Trump. Those were his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, former deputy chief of staff, Dan Scavino, uh, Steve Bannon, who's a close uh, advisor on the outside to Trump, and also Cash Patel, who is uh, the former chief of staff of the Department of Defense at the time. Now, we're learning through a source and, and through actually a statement from a Trump official that essentially Trump has instructed them that he doesn't want them to comply. He thinks it's all covered by executive privilege and that they should not answer the uh, committee's request. The, the The committee has requested documents from the four of them by today. So by this evening at midnight, they want the documents. Uh, they are unlikely uh, to get those. So you have that batch of subpoenas. And then last week, the committee issued 11 subpoenas requesting documents and depositions from organizers and others associated with that pro-Trump rally outside the White House that then turned into the march on the U.S. Capitol. So we're learning that many of these 11 individuals linked to the rally are expected to comply in, in some form or fashion with the House Select Committee's investigation into the insurrection. Of course, that comes while the others are expected to stonewall. So we have confirmed that so far a majority of those contacted have, have been engaging in active conversations with the committee. Look, I think their stance is we have nothing to hide. We just organized this rally, um, this pro-Trump rally rally. So we will happily uh, comply with your request. But this all, you know, unfolding uh, behind the scenes, and and we'll see ultimately uh, what they have to say. These depositions are usually in private, but the transcripts are usually usually released after perhaps they'll get documents soon. The committee has set deadlines for those as well. So uh, more information definitely will be coming into the committee. What happens if those top aides rebuff the requests? It's a good question. So Trump has indicated that he's prepared to take this to court, at least. So you've seen this before during the administration, how these court fights uh, play out. They take a while. Now, Benny Thompson, the the chairman of the committee, has said he's prepared to make criminal referrals for those who defy the deadlines. What that means is you could just make a criminal referral to the Justice Department, for example. It's not 
that big of a deal, I guess. Nothing is going to happen immediately, I should say, if Thompson makes such a such a criminal referral. So I think this is something that you'll definitely see play out in the court system, potentially another fight over executive privilege. What is the committee after? Well, they want to know what exactly was going on in every government agency, all the communications, the communications between the organizers and the U.S. government, the communications between the organizers and Trump. They're really looking for who knew what, when, the extent of the planning that went into this. What Did the former president know that this was going to uh, turn into a violent insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. What were the communications around that? We know where Trump was that day. He was at the White House. He was with his chief of staff. He was with his former White House counsel. But there's a gap there. There's a gap in, in, in exactly what we know about the communications, the organizing that went into it. And that's really what they're after here. ABC's Catherine Falters. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. That's Como's Elisa Jaffe. Still to come, threats to medical staff and school officials continue, mostly from anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers, plus a local congresswoman tests positive for COVID. When the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogula. We told you earlier this week that an increasing number of healthcare workers and school leaders are being physically and verbally assaulted by anti COVID vaccine and anti mask proponents. ABC News crime and terrorism analyst Brad Garrett is on our Como Newsline. Brad, how big a role is social media playing in all of this? I think a monumental role. I think the combination of social media and obviously folks who follow Trump's line of thinking about the virus uh, and about alternatives to treating the virus and not wearing masks. I mean, there is a large chunk, some estimates, maybe up to 70 million people in this country follow in some form that logic about the, the this disease. And so it really creates quite the problem in trying to get people to have a rational conversation about what really boils down to a public health issue and really nothing beyond that. That's a big deal, of course. But we certainly don't fight each other about kids getting tetanus shots or rubella shots or whatever the state, your state mandates that you have to take to go to school. But this has taken on a life of its own. This is going to be a tough ship to turn around. Do we know who is behind most of the misinformation and what can be done about it? Well, there's one one nonprofit NGO that contends there's about 12 people and organizations that fund and promote and put out the social media, like 65 percent of, uh, of the misinformation about the virus. Now, if you add to that, however, China, Russia and Iran fund it, because I think they do some of it through indirect means, you know, because they want to sow discord. The, the more they can sort of get us to fight each other, which we clearly are doing on this topic and others, the weaker potentially they think we will become, which I think is probably correct if you're, if you are them. So this is a tough, this is really a tough box to try to get out of. And it's just an emotional subject, man. I mean, it's like talking about guns or abortion. Now viruses are part of that emotional that people are this or that and they don't want they just do not want to look at middle ground that's true thanks for your time brad as always abc news crime and terrorism analyst brad garrett that's como's man to factor and greg herschel 
Congresswoman Kim Schreier, meanwhile, is pleading with the Biden administration to make more rapid COVID testing available. She says that in the U.S., only eight rapid antigen tests are approved for home use. And of those, only three are available direct to consumers. Compare that to the U.K., Schreier adds, where 36 different COVID tests are available for home use. She wants rapid testing to be so abundant that... If you get up in the morning, brush your teeth, stick a Q-tip up your nose, see if you're positive or negative for COVID. If you're positive... You stay home uh, and you don't go and expose others to the illness. Schreier, who is also a pediatrician, is particularly concerned about public schools, where the Democrat says the nation will need four billion rapid COVID tests to cover each student for the entire school year. Meanwhile, Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers has tested positive for COVID. The 52-year-old Republican from Spokane made the announcement Friday morning. In a statement, McMorris-Rogers says her symptoms are mild and she is quarantining at home. The Congresswoman goes on to say she has been fully vaccinated, making this a breakthrough case. And she encourages anyone who hasn't gotten the shot to talk to their doctor about getting vaccinated. And for those who get fired for refusing to get vaccinated, well, they may not be eligible for unemployment benefits. The State Employment Security Department says they will look at a variety of factors, including when the mandate was issued, whether it's public or private, and why the employee refused to get the shot. But bottom line, without an exemption, getting fired for refusing to get vaccinated against COVID will likely result in the employee being ineligible for unemployment benefits. But the state says they will look at each claim on a case-by-case basis. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and so much more. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Podula. Thank you for listening and have a good week.